Okay, so here we are again. Um, we're still in my kitchen. Um, hi, this is Tom. Sorry, um, and you are I'm Baldo. Baldo Bjornsson. So this is number three. You'd have heard number one. You'd have heard number two, and we're now doing the third one. So you're kind of stuck with us, I think. And if um, you haven't heard the other two, then it doesn't really matter because we we uh, uh, what we're going to say probably won't make sense anyway. No, absolutely. And if you haven't heard the other two, then how are you hearing this one? Are you subscribing to a thing you haven't? Anyway, yes, beside the point. <laughs> um, so we when we started this, we had a we had an outline for the first sort of half dozen, um, and just because like writing the book, things change as you go along. We're going to deviate from the outline. Um, this is kind of fun. Um, we had a letter from a listener. <laughs> Actually, we didn't. We had a letter from a reader of the book that accompanies this podcast, or that this podcast accompanies, um, who could go anonymous, but I could submit um, Mr. G.W. Um, of Blackfriars, um, wrote in and and kind of made a really interesting point. Um, because the book, this is not a book, the book that, the book object thing that we wrote that this goes along with, obviously has been released as a website um, and in a variety of forms that Boulder's been working on and has been redesigned since its first launch. But one of the points that was made was kind of the, in, I want to say the inherent unnavigability or or the difference in navigating a print object as regards navigating a digital object. And the point that was being made in this very well-written, incredibly well-expressed, because that's what he does, um, email, was the sense in which we we kind of felt like a, an object that had been written for one format and that was being put into another format, and it maybe wasn't kind of matching the two completely, um, or matching kind of a way of reading that was completely natural, which I think we we agree with and we kind of we understood because our, our intention was always this is that this at some point becomes a physical book but for the moment just frankly to get it read we'd like to have it out there and it's a website so um that long kind of preamble is really my way of saying that what i want to talk about or we want to talk about today is what does print do and what mm-hmm. does digital do um and to use that as a way of talking about what print could become in digital or what digital could do that print doesn't do and just try and that was a very messy way of saying we need to kind of unpick that mess a little bit <laughs> well just to begin with um in in the in this is not a book mm. uh, one of the things that struck me when I, I i go through it and i alternate between the single page version which is probably the closest approximation to the book reading experience that we have on the site and the other version is that there are parts of it that work a lot better once it's atomized and there are parts of it that work a lot better when it's a part of a, a long single argument so it's not an, um, an either or there are a, the book is um the book it becomes a different thing it becomes a it gets uh, there are points in it that become weak in one form but are strong in another and vice uh, and, and vice versa so, like for example, there are a few of the uh, uh, the um, the parts where we do like a rapid fire series of advice. Each one is a well-contained nugget mm. that works really well. Um, atomized on the website, you can just uh, link to it and people do it. And there's a single piece of advice that's concrete and actionable that they can see on the website. Mm. But the bits of it that lay out an argument that, like for example, the the when we're talking about building up sort of a um, uh, our vision of of how to approach 
narrative structure mm. or you know or, or trying to or, or where we're trying to figure out how to emphasize emphasize with the reader uh, those uh, those parts work a lot better when they are um as uh, uh, presented as a part of the whole so the thing that i'd say that print can uh, uh, that digital can do that print has difficulties with is that it can do both as in, you can do, you can offer digital it much more easily in a variety of forms and, and representations. I, I, uh, but I haven't linked to it from the site itself. But I've, uh, I, I keep, I, I've got a PDF version of the entire thing mm. that um, um, you know anybody could uh, could down, uh, download and is kept up to date with a regular site. That's another reading experience. Mm. So that, that if I had to pick one thing. That um, I'd sort of say was the strength of digital. That would be the sort of dy- a, a dynamic adaptability. And, and in that, because while what you were talking, one of the things I wanted to quickly lay to rest um, was this is not just about line length. It's not just about the length of a paragraph, the length of a page, or saying that you know there are some things that we make in a bigger argument. It's actually about, and you and I talked a little bit about this when we were writing it. It's about the arguments that we're making and the way in which we want to make those arguments. And some things. Um, <clears throat> sort of do lend themselves to that kind of more punchy. I don't want to say PowerPoint, but that kind of almost kind of that sort of contained argument, that contained thing that goes: here is a thing, and here is another thing, and here is another thing, and here is another thing, and we're going to link to these things, or you can link, or you can read them in your own order. But as you say, there are, there are some sections of it that do demand a more kind of considered reading experience, mm. a more kind of long, a longer form. And I think maybe just to kind of address weaknesses in digital, if I can kind of throw that in for a second, maybe those things don't work as well on a website because you're scrolling up and scrolling down and you can't kind of keep... One of the things I think is... Actually, okay, let's put it another way. One of the things I think is true about reading a book um, is the sense of the physical object, of your your, your your kind of haptic relationship to a physical object. That, you know, you, we can look at the... This is an argument for Peter Mayer. Thank you, Peter. It's a brilliant book. Um, we, we can look at the, the end of a book. We can look at the spine of a book and we can we can turn the thing around and we can pretty much know where we're turning to. We know when we're looking for a certain thing in it. Yeah. And that, that I think, isn't certainly isn't true on the website. It's more difficult to do. It's a more difficult kind of engagement with the text and with the arguments there. And I think one of the problems I had... I continually have with ebooks is is making that making it's not even a bookmark because it's not bookmarking isn't enough bookmarking is not a natural for me way to do things within a digital environment mm. it feels kind of that I'm forcing I'm forcing a relationship with a marker in a text in a, in, a, in a string file and then forcing myself to kind of go back into it what I, what I want to do is look at a book and go it's about halfway through here yeah. it's sort of um, slight forewarning because we're entering into a territory here that I have been angry about for years, and that is the fact that the a lot of the limitations of digital are self-inflicted. Right. Um, because uh, one of the things that we have with um, um, print that people, especially people who design software, um, don't realise is that print has embodied navigation. Yeah. Um, you know, it's um, um, you have the uh, you have an almost abstract con- uh, concept mapped out on a, co- on a concrete 3D object, mm. and um, one of the mis- uh, one of the biggest mistakes that people keep doing in um, when they when they map text onto uh, create uh, uh, these reading applications is that they they 
they they they boil it down to just the text. Mm. They forget that the te- that text has never existed in isolation. Mm. It's always been a part of on some sort of form of navigation that's always explicit and can never be dismissed. Yeah. And mm. what they do, do now is that they take the text, they boil everything away, and they hide all the navigation. They hide. They hide. Uh, like when I stare at a, at a screen. And there's a, the, the, there's a tiny number in the corner that has absolutely no meaning to me about where I am in the book. It does not, it does not map on anything. It doesn't register. I have no clue, no mm. clue whatsoever. What, um, you know, if I'm on the phone with the changing font sizes and everything, what does page 200 out of 600 mean? Sure. It doesn't mm. mean a thing. And what they do is that they've 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 systematically stripped away everything, all of the navigational features that we that we as developers, as user interface designers, have learned throughout the, throughout the years are necessary. Progress bars, um, a constantly explicit structure, as in you always have the navigation, you always have the landmarks visible, you make sure that you see everything every, all the time so that people can build a map of it in their heads. Mm. But we keep hiding everything and we make ebooks useless because we hide their structure. We hide them away. We just show the text mm. and we cripple them. And there's no, it's, it's, it's amazing that, that ebooks have managed to get the traction that they have, uh, con- all things considered, because, uh, uh, because if you go through all of these apps, they've all completely and utterly and systematically destroy everything that's useful about um, memorizing, about learning, about um, uh, building a structure of um, um, uh, 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 sort of internalizing the structure of the book. And it's just, it's infuriating that people have been making this point that, that, that you know, this is something to be fixed and that the, this, the, uh, this is holding ebooks back. People have been talking about this for years, mm. um, ever since the first Kindle came out. And it was always the, the when the first Kindle came out and the iBooks uh, first came out, there was always this talk, oh, we're gonna, they're going to fix it in the next version. But the next version, they strip out more. They take out more mm. of the navigation. They take out more. And it, like you said, <clears throat> adding a bloody bookmark... Just pasting it onto there with yeah. no meaning, with no affordances. There's no user interface affordance involved with these bookmarks. It is just, it's making a mockery of the entire thing. It's it's making, um, actually, yeah, we, we should just kind of acknowledge it. And it's Peter Mayer's break. Have you read Peter Mayer's Breaking the Page? Um, I, I, I kept up with his blog that he was keeping while he was writing it, but I haven't actually read the um Okay. Book. Right. In so, case, <clears throat> but I, I, I'm pretty sure that he's um, probably there's a lot more in the book than than there is in or was in the blog because that was mostly sort of notes and observations. Uh, possibly. I mean, I, I, I read it this week. Um, Craig Maud, I think, and Peter Mendelssohn um, tweeted it or recommended it, and I thought, okay, no, it's out. And I think I'd, I'd remembered, like you, I'd, there was a blog, and I'd been reading little bits of it, and it kind of fell by the wayside for me. But he, he devotes a big chunk of, and it's a really interesting book. And that we should actually just say this in terms of recommending other people's work. For goodness sake, just turn this thing off, go and download that. It'll cost you six quid and, and just read it because it's good. Um, and we're good as well. But anyway, <laughs> <clears throat> he devotes a good chunk of, I think, the first third of the book to really addressing copyright pages <laughs> on the Kindle. Because there's a yeah. whole load later on which actually 
which we'll come on to in terms of thinking about the navigation and the physical navigation of a book and the digital navigation. Exact and, and kind of exact. He's saying what you said, um, mm. but he's what he's interestingly doing is also providing a way around that and a way to rethink it, which for me was kind of something really valuable about that book. Cool. But he does do something really, and it's it is tied into this. Um, location something of something something within a Kindle or the percentage of the book because it's about for me for me and for Mayers there's, there's a kind of a hierarchy of reading I'm I'm much less interested in the copyright page yeah than I am in the content of the book but the Kindle doesn't give any kind of differentiation between that no and as he points out you know we, we can the, the book he kind of looks at and I think it's a penguin text um, actually gives because it doesn't change the type size within the copyright page everything is completely uniform with the rest of the book then we can find you know the, the home addresses of every bit of every division of Penguin across the whole world given the same kind of priority the same kind of hierarchy as the text of the book itself which is just sort of simple and obvious and easy but completely ridiculous yeah. completely stupid and then he, he, he then proceeds to kind of pick apart the way in which we read um, and as I say, interestingly, later on, then proposes a whole different way of imagining the way you might engage with a library rather than engage with a library as the Kindle presents. And I've got just up my phone here um, and gone, yes, there is, a li- there is obviously a library on my Kindle and it's kind of pointless. Mm. It's dull. It shows me what I've read. It shows little dots on what I'm halfway through or what I gave up on. But there is nothing, there's no, there's no sense of organisation. There's no sense of this book corresponds to this. This there's, there's no sense of metadata about what this is about. I've not been able to kind of annotate that and, yeah. and give myself, and this does come back to, you know, we could walk 20 feet and go into the study and I could look at the books and go, that book is about that. That's there. That's next to that one because it's located to that one. That's my current to be read shelf or shelf and a half. Um, <laughs> but there's none of that within a digital device. And it, that, that for me seems to be one of the things that print does, print objects do well because we have this kind of mnemonic relationship with them. Mm-hmm. We have a kind of unconscious response to a print object and an unconscious relationship with the history of it and our history with it and where even where we put it on the shelf that we should be able to do that with a digital device well we should uh, uh, richard nash a future book last year mm. um he presented a, a sort of an idea which i don't think he actually presented that well at future book but in the pub afterwards he actually um came up with an, an excellent um sort of catchphrase for it, is that the a digital library should be like um, Fitbit for your mind. Okay. As in, it's, it, the, the Kindle uh, it not, no, not only know, has um, an overview of, of your entire um, um, library, yeah. it, it should be able to tell you, I mean, how much time you spend in each genre, well, sort of what sort of book by what sort of author engages you more in terms of annotation and and reading and, and bookmarking and all that it should give you well, something one of the things that print should, a digital should give you that print can't is a much more analytical overview of how you engage with your uh, with your books if you want it because that's something that um that that digital can do to make up for the lack of this sort of um, um, physical um, interaction, which suddenly opens up, this, because one of the one of the questions that's dominated, one of the um, the, the debates that's dominated digital and publishing for the last two or three years, and it's kind of gone away this year, I suppose, it's still there, is big data mm. and data from reading and you know the the scare story that went around 
um, about six months ago that um, a publisher would then, a writer or a publisher or an agent or editor would know how far people got through a text. And so if you stopped at page 121 of Nick Harkaway's Tiger Man, then Nick would be suddenly inspired to read to change page 122 mm. because that's where everybody stopped. But that's that being presented as, quite rightly, something that's incredibly wrong, incredibly kind of... Um, wow. broken about but actually what in a way what you're suggesting I think what Myers is getting to as well is that data about our reading is not a bad thing no. but data that's not presented to the reader mm. data that's not used in any way that goes okay this is how you read the problem is entirely Here's with data you that you don't that. have ownership over right okay um, so if, if 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 your reading creates data in the cloud for some publisher or um, or a retailer that's a problem because that is it's you they're basically sort of getting sort of part mythological superstition they're hijacking a sh- your shadow self yeah um, that sort of they've got a piece of your soul that they captured and uh, are keeping up in the cloud but Data that you have on your your own devices that you control. It's like um, um, I use a, a an app to track my sleeping. Um, right. You know, I, uh, I turn on that, put the um, iPhone next to my pillow, and it tells me the quality of sleep, whether I've you know tumbled and turned and all that, and it rocks from sixty sixty percent quality up to eighty five percent quality, depending on what's going on. Okay. Mm. Um, and obviously that data is not going anywhere. No. Mm. Um, but because it's data that I chose to collect and I chose to, uh, uh, to uh, chose to map, that has value to me because yeah. it affects mm. you know what I do just before I go to sleep and all that. Completely. And the same thing applies to reading. Yes, and but and. I think the point being that we're not, as readers, we're not being allowed to see that data. We're, no. not, we're not, or actually, not even that we're not being allowed to see it. We're given no useful way of passing that data into something that's useful. You know, that data exists. There's no bargain there. there there's, no. there's no agreement. There's just taking. There's just taking, and there's no, no, I mean, this may be, I mean, actually, this is, people talk about the killer app for books. That may be the killer app for books. That someone turns around and goes, we can, we're going to track your reading. We're going to track how you read. We're going to look at where you're reading certain things. Which, of course, for me, at least is artificial because I tend to have a digital copy and a print copy and the digital copy is there for convenience. But yeah. what I read is not in kind of a regular order. But actually, maybe that's the killer app for books in terms of changing the way you read and giving mm. you something that... Or giving you a richer reading experience in a broader sense, in a kind of meta sense, rather than thinking about... We can still keep... it. Okay, let's say we can't fix text and illustration and whatever else, but we can we can change how you engage with a library of books. We can change how you engage with a digital library and how you might use that content and use that mm. data. And I mean, the other thing is I, I, I'm an academic and I work with the library, uh, the university, and I work with libraries a reasonable amount. And, and that data, their way of looking at it is, is similarly broken. There appears to be no way to... They're interested in... <clears throat> And the tools we have, they tell you how many times students access a journal. They t- tell you what the search terms were. They don't tell you anything about how they read it. They don't tell you yeah. anything about what they did with it and how it's That's because they can't measure those parts. But also because the systems don't exist to allow them to measure those parts. Yeah. But and for me, that's there was an email that kind of came around three or four days ago saying we're no longer going to subscribe to these journals because that they've not students looked at four articles in this journal and no articles in this journal and one article in this journal. Therefore, we're going to cancel the subscription. <laughs> and I thought, well, from well, a purely economic point of view, okay, fine. From an actual user point of view, from a kind of usability, because these are not these are not useless pieces of academic journal, although maybe that's a different conversation. Um, 
maybe there's something about how we're directing them and how we're directing students and what they can do with it that actually mm. is more useful and more valuable to kind of bring out from that. But anyway, that's kind of it's a side point. Well, there is a there's an anecdote here that I always bring up when we do when the discussion of um, uh, ebook data and data collection comes up, and uh, you've heard it. I've probably told it to you a dozen times. Um, but it's a story about Umberto, Umberto Eco's library, mm-hmm. and it basically goes as uh, you've you've said this uh, sort of uh, uh, repeated this story as, uh, several times. But the, the the core of the story is the idea that there is a huge amount of value in the books you haven't read. That a library of books that you haven't read is an asset. It's yeah. something. It's it's information that you, it's always going to be there at your fingertips. It's um, something you can delve into when the need arises, and it's information you don't have to carry around in your head. So the it's it it if while it it might be uh, while there might be some value for a publisher to um, be worried. Mm. If um, people buy, keep buying their fiction books but don't read them, mm. um, which I think is is almost certainly the case, for example, with almost all literary fiction that's entirely bought as you know show off fiction. Yeah. Um, but if you're doing the set up, you can't apply the same logic to nonfiction because nonfiction is uh, even unread is an asset. It mm. is a a a a, a sort of a Information cap- captured in amber, um, and its its value lies in being there when you have a problem, when you have a question, and you mm. need to find out, you know, what does X say about mm. Y that specific problem, yeah. and that, that, that's why uh, sort of the um, there's um, there's a huge risk whenever you engage in data collection of short termism. Mm. Because valuable data tends only to be surfaced in the long term, because short-term data is almost always noise, yeah. and it's just a standard practice. Whenever you do research, is that the longer you can monitor things, the more um, sound the results are, because uh, the day-to-day variations are so so it can be so massive and random. Yeah. So. There's a huge risk if publishers start would start rely on uh, relying on these things uh, that they would forget uh, miss out on the books that have whose value might seem low in the short term, but to the reader would have massive value in the long term when something comes up that means that they need it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, one thing that I do find interesting is that I've. Um, I've actually been uh, sort of involved uh, as a consultant on a couple of uh, on an an analytics Mm. effort, Um, and um, well, so one thing that I find interesting is that one, if you present readers with a bargain, with a deal, as in saying you get this book for free in exchange, we um, we can follow uh, we can uh, follow your reading, but only only if you actually click and say send send the information. Mm-hmm. If you present people with that bargain, uh, readers are a lot more open to the idea, and they uh, and even even to the degree where they obsessively click the link um, that sends in information at every bloody uh, at every bloody chapter just to make sure that 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 they they're keeping up their part of the deal, which is. You know, so if you present them with uh, with, uh, with a, a bargain that they understand that they find f- find to be fair, then that that becomes a completely different thing. That becomes yeah. something that people can appreciate. And the other thing that's interesting about um, about um, those efforts is the fact that publishers they aren't really interested in 
Um, I'm about to sort of need to be careful how I word this. Well, fuck it. Um, they aren't interested in anything that's actually useful. They all of the data, all of the analytics that they're interested in are uh, vanity metrics. They they want data okay, right. that mm. can make their ego feel good, as in you know the people have read the, uh, um, uh, uh, you know this amount of people have have you know read read the book towards uh, towards end. They're not interested in in things like how uh, how 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 I big a percentage to- of the people who read that book were, uh, were converted to the buyers for the next book. Which I, okay, now I agree with you. That's actually far more valuable data. That's the, the well, it's got a monetary value attached to it, a literal, a literal dollar, uh, monetary value. Completely. But I think I want, to, I want to take issue with the vanity thing on the first thing you said, because I think, yes, what's been focused on are the easy answers, the simple answers. And, the, and this is something in terms of the next one of these that we do, and I've got in my head there's an argument about the future and the present that kind of mm. runs around that. But actually, I think one of those things, one of the, one of the things that drives that kind of data collection is, okay, this is, today is all about me putting things a different way. Publishers take risks all the time. Every advance, no matter how small it is, is a risk on an author's return. On you know, You're going to sell X, X copies of this book and therefore we're going to give you this amount of money. It's going to cost us this to produce and this to ship and this to market and this to go into Waterstones or Amazon and we're going to get our money back. And that's a risk. That's a calculated yeah. risk. Um, and actually, I think one of the way, one of the reasons that for that kind of short-termism of data is that's all driven by that, by, by kind of mitigating and understanding that risk. So that we can figure out, you know, we marketing can can be confident that X number of people read three quarters of the way through this novel, and they will probably come back and buy another one, even though we don't have any real data on that. But we can be confident that they've read enough of it through, or we can get sales figures, or we can get reading figures, or we can get browsing figures, because that's about mitigating that financial risk. It's not about changing their behaviour. Yeah, and maybe that's actually the thing that I'm interested in in terms of where what we do with data that we can change a reader's behaviour and we can give them information and useful information about what they do. And as your example about using your phone to monitor your own sleep and therefore that kind of may change what you drink in the evening, may change what you eat, may change your your, your habit of the last hour before you go to bed. All of which is really valuable for you as an individual. Mm-hmm. But the device is giving you that data, and maybe that. We're not as interested as an industry, and including myself in that, in or we're not interested enough in helping readers and helping people. We're not interested figure- at all. Right. Okay. It's, uh, yeah. One of the things that I keep, I keep uh, bringing this up when when I talk to people, and it keeps getting ignored. Hmm. Um, the standards. Um, we're, we are complete as an industry. We are completely invested in the idea that the book has inherent value. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't serve the reader because the book has value. And meanwhile, um, readers are going to YouTube and they're they're solving their problems by going to YouTube. It's like if if you're getting into if you uh, one of the things I did the other day was um, I dug up a few of my old fountain pens. Right. Which I've been um, uh, 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 sitting in a box for years, and I uh, decided to go and clean them and pre- uh, prepare them and ink them up and get them all ready. Mm-hmm. And the best resource for how to um, clean your fountain pens and prepare them and do things and what and reviews for what inks to buy and all that is YouTube. YouTube, absolutely. Um, yeah. And for mm-hmm. any absolutely any given hobby or mm-hmm. interest or anything that you used to go to the library or bookstore for, yeah. 
it, people go to YouTube now first, and we're, it's like we're losing a complete, uh, an entire generation of potential readers because they always go to YouTube first, and we aren't even trying to solve their problems. We, there's no interest even in trying to say, instead of doing this book about this nonfiction subject, subject mm. let's let's start off by testing, um, by putting together a series of YouTube videos to see if there's an audience. Mm. Um, you know, and uh, it's sort of publishers are uh, they are uh, stuck on the idea that they are a a manufacturer of a specific format instead of solutions. Yeah. Um. This ties back into the old um um uh, sort of analogy that I've denigrated, denigrated myself so often about the whole buggy whip versus yeah. you know mm. but, uh, um, um, people in the in the cards industry not realizing that they were in um, um, in the transport industry yeah. there's a little bit of that um, but there's there's the risk of you have to decide for yourself whether you are um, if you if you are if the value of what you do lies in the book then you need to focus on the book you need to f- focus on creating um, well-made, well-bound, excellent paper mm. editions that are yep. almost artisanal. Um, yep. that, uh, that you need to, that, uh, basically, you need to raise your prices. You, mm. you need to turn it into a thing that's of, of its own. Yep. But if if what you're interested in is solving people's problems, then the book isn't really the best solution for that. In for the most cases, I mean, yeah. it's rare that making a book is is the is the simplest and easiest way to solve somebody's problem. Sure. Um, so maybe what we're one of the things about publishing is that, as you say, if if you're in the book industry, then if you uh, sorry, I'm going to paraphrase you. If you're committed to the book industry, then really think about what that is. But actually, if you're in the communicating ideas, mm. maybe that's what it's certainly one of the things that publishing comes down to. It's communicating an idea, it's communicating an expression, it's communicating a story. But actually, there are, and I don't want to turn all publishers into filmmakers, and that's not the answer, and that's definitely not. You know, don't. I don't, what I don't want to do is to say producers get out of the industry because there are, <laughs> but there are more. There are maybe if you're going to grow your audience, if you're going to keep your slice of that, um, and the figure that was quoted to me two weeks ago um, was three point three billion in international sales um, over a year. If you want your slice of that and not have not see that kind of diminish year on year and year and year and year, year going forward, you've got to think about how you bring an audience to it and mm. how you kind of change your audience's relationship with the thing that actually gets you the money in the finish. Mm. And that may be commissioning video. It may be completely changing the way you pre-market something. Um, and one of my bugbears at the moment is marketing and is the way books, not as so much books are marketed. because oh, they, they aren't marketed. Especially so, just, they, they do PR for books that have already have PR. traction. Yes, they, PR is done incredibly well and there's some very talented people and very smart people working in PR. But actually the notion of how do you market a book and how do you bring an audience and how do you build an audience, and this is this is a different podcast, mm-hmm. and maybe we need to bring a writer in, is how do you get, how do you, how do you as a writer build an audience? And how yeah. and is it your responsibility? Is your publisher's responsibility? Is it your agent's? Where does that sit? And how actually is that sitting sensibly and is that in any way being served by technology at the moment? And that is definitely a different argument. Anyway, <clears throat> we said... Go on, do you have a oh, no, the, uh, the only point I wanted to make was the fact that the, probably the safest part of the publishing industry today is narrative prose, as in uh, novels and uh, narrative non-fiction, like autobiographies and mm-hmm. biographies. Because... Those are just really well suited to print and yep. and ebooks. Mm. And um, 
it's it, the it's it's a for, it's a form of of it's a medium that uh, a form of storytelling that's been around for ages and it's not likely to disappear. No. So it's sort of it's it's more everybody else in publishing that's going to be, are going to be worried um, because uh, who, it's more everybody else who are um, who's. Who are basically uh, uh, deliver uh, sort of whose business de- uh, hinges on delivering uh, value to the reader rather than um, sort of delivering a specific form of storytelling to the, to the reader. They're the ones who have to be worried. The people who are doing novels, there's probably going to. Be, I mean, the, the, the novel sur- uh, survived um, the radio, it survived mm. film, it survived TV, it survived computer games, it survived the tw- first twenty five years of the web. Mm. It, we, it's not likely to diminish that much, um, in, uh, sort of over the over the long term, which is why the whole discussion about the uh, ebook versus print transition is such nonsense because it's just basically uh, shifting this. Uh, you got a, a jar full of marbles, and um, it's basically you've got the same number of marbles, and you're shifting uh, shifting them slightly back and forth. Yeah. It's mm. it's all the same readership. It's just a matter of uh, and. Well, yeah, how they're being served depends on on almost on fashion from year to year. What devices are out? Um, you know, uh, sort of uh, uh, what, uh, sort of what distribution's going on? So it's uh, uh, there's people keep focusing on the novel mm-hmm. and they keep focusing on narrative uh, a prose, but though, the, uh, those are the those are the parts of the book industry that are uh, I think are going to be the most stable, and they're tiny as well. They're they're such mm. a tiny part <laughs> of the industry. Yeah. There's certainly the bits that don't. Looking at the numbers in the Guardian, the Sunday Times, at the weekend of sales figures, they're the, they're the numbers that are hitting the low thousands. They're not hitting in the tens, twenties, thousands. Nah, and it, with, with obviously some exceptions. Well, it's there are, there there's event a, books, but it's, it's an open secret mm. in, the, in the UK publishing industry, which is basically that if you can manage to um, break even at selling 400 copies, then uh, publishing is no brainer because you can 400 copies is about what a first novel a first novel sells. Sure. Okay. So that that's the measure. That's the, do you want that, to know how how much a first novel in Iceland sells? Gone. Probably uh, uh, sort of uh, around the order of about five times that. That's uh, you know. Really? Yeah. In Iceland. Yeah. <clears throat> and these are novels published in Icelandic by Icelandic authors. Yeah. Okay. And We're talking about first-time authors. Uh, repeat yeah. authors uh, sort of uh, quite frequently get up, up into the three, four. Um, but the big name authors uh, they do sell in, t- in in tens of thousands. Okay. And um, so it's it's just. Icelanders read books. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the British don't read books. They are anti-intellectual to a fault. <laughs> I want to. I want to dwell on this. Is this? Are these, these are figures that are these true for all the Nordic countries, or are these just you've got them for Iceland? I've uh, just got, I have no idea what the, the okay. numbers are for the, or the other Nordic countries. So, uh, I, these are um, about um, three or four year old uh, figures done by. It was a, a study done by the um, um, in co- a collaboration between the Bookseller Association in, in Iceland and the Publishers Association. Wow! And I think even the Writers uh, the Writers Union was in there as well. Okay, because we're talking about a country that has a population of three hundred and forty thousand, which is a reasonable amount less than the United Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little bit in terms of an order. I mean, yes, you could you could let Icelanders really love their books. They just really, really love their more books. More people voted in the Labour leadership election than in the population of Iceland. Yes. Um, okay. And at first novel sells five or four or five times more than it does in the UK. On average. I mean, there are first novels that do do really well in the UK as well, but yeah, you know, they're, they're in the minority. Yes, but they're in a minority compared to a country that kind of habitually sells and reaches that Mm. Which I know we've seen. I mean, we're there, there's a downside to the to this in Iceland. It, it, uh, the problem with the Icelandic book industry is that there is absolutely no backlist. Nothing is kept in print. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
if if you if you didn't buy a, uh, buy the book, um, you know, in the year that it was brought out, there's a good chance that the only way you can get it is buying a used copy. And is that tradition, or is that because there is no? It's tradition because there's just yeah, the market can do both at the same time. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's not there's no culture of stories and no culture of first editions. All there's got the culture of first. Ah, no, but this it, is it, just it is, this is the way it is done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if if you if you if the industry had it for, uh, to, or if the where. The keeping the backlist around comes at a cost of the new books. Yeah. So if they decided to keep all of these books around, then we'd have your new books. Okay. So it's just they decided let's just do new, a new thing every year because people buy new things, people love new things. Yeah. Um, and obviously it helps that there's a lot of media around books in Iceland. We've got primetime TV shows and uh, um, loads of coverage in all of the uh, newspapers and uh, um, and all, all all of that. So it's just it's a different it's a different balance. Um, I mean, it's sort of you can imagine how well, how the UK publishing industry would change if they decided that they would just completely ditch the backlist and just focus on new books. It would completely change. The, it would be horrifying to a degree. Yeah. <laughs> but mainly because the UK has such a massively large history of interesting books. Yes. Um, but sort of, uh, um, the, uh, but Iceland also has a very lo- long history of being inveterate novelty seekers. Right. Um, almost all of the traditions that we tell people, that we tell tourists are long, they were invented in, uh, sort of after World War Two. Um and it's like, for example, there's a, the, a thing called Thorin, Thorrahauti, which is where... Um, a traditional festival where everybody comes together and eats Icelandic food. That was invented in the 80s. Right. And we, we keep okay. telling foreigners and tourists that this is something that's been a, a long-term tradition. But no, Iceland really loves new things. We, 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 we pick up new things at the drop of a hat and we drop the old just like there's no love of tradition. I just want to interrogate that number again a little bit more because I'm, I'm kind of slightly... You never We talked about the Icelandic book industry before but you never actually said that to me. <laughs> so how many, how many new... These are first-time novelists. How does that compare in terms of numbers of books published from Iceland to the UK? Are we talking? I mean, proportionally, is that an equivalent? You can well, I think map we've, that we've got together. a world record of new titles published per capita per year. Right. Okay. Sort of something on the. I mean, it's sort of uh, where the average. Um, do my defend the UK bit here? And we can't be that bad. We can't be that philistine, but apparently we are. Well, yeah. I mean, the UK publishing industry is compared to France or Germany. Um, you're a bunch of Philistines. I mean, it's sort of like this idea that UK civilists. No, you're not. You're a bunch of Philistines. You don't buy books. You don't read books. You don't even watch good movies. You refuse to watch subtitled things except when there involves a shitload of murders every episode. You're a bunch of Philistines. The Americans are just ever so slightly worse. So... That makes you feel better. Yeah, I know. Okay, but it's sort right. of... Uh, but if you go to Germany or France or Denmark or any of the other countries, they they translate a lot more books. They publish a lot more books per capita. The the German book market is huge. Mm. It's massive, um, and uh, it's sort of uh, it's. I mean the uh, the idea that the UK publishing industry is somehow preeminent. It's not. It's not even the big. It's not even the most interesting one in Europe. Okay. That's so anyway, so just sort of to deflate people's no, uh, uh, people a, whole, a bit. <laughs> that's a whole different episode of this whole thing of mm. pulling apart different. Anyway, right. So right on that. Where story. were we? What well, were we, we talking about? We started by saying we would interrogate a little bit of what print does and what digital does. Um, and the other reason for doing this, I suppose, is something I wrote for Future Book. Um, oh, the manifesto. The manifesto. Um, so Philip Jones of Future Book um, put out a call. People keep calling it poetic. 
What? The manifesto, a poetic manifesto. What, mine? Yeah. Because it rhymes. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, well, it's meant to be spoken aloud. I, there's a cold Kate Tempest thing going on in my head, or there was when I was writing it. Anyway, um, so just to give a background, Philip Jones put a call for five um, funded word manifestos for the future of publishing, the future of the book, um, which I think is a kind of... Anyway, that's a different podcast. Um, and I wrote this thing that was kind of, as I tend to do, a kind of spirited defence of what we've got is not good enough and what we've got is really not what was promised, which goes back to conversations you and I have had for 15 years. But there's a line in it that I thought chimed with our semi-anonymous um, listener, reader, <laughs> um, that I said, um, digital is capable of things that print cannot do and it cannot do what print can. Mm. Um, and it's something that... I hadn't kind of articulated in that way until I wrote it. I was just, that was kind of, it was almost stream of consciousness writing and what kind of got published was not the first draft, but was very close to a first draft of an awful lot of that. And the point where half of the manifesto said enough, stop rhyming, is because I ran out of rhymes. <laughs> um, and I couldn't think of a way to keep the sequence going. And I'm much more in awe of poets than I usually am. But I just, I suppose that was the thing I really wanted to spend a little bit of time on with this podcast, is thinking about what does... What does digital do that print cannot do, and what what can't it do that print can do? And I think we've 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 done that a little bit in terms of the way we read and our kind of mm. relationship to the physical object and our relationship to kind of the the form of the thing and and how we unconsciously navigate and unconsciously kind of find our way to content and and have a relationship with a book, a set of books, and how sort of imperfect that is in terms of our relationship with the digital equivalent. But I'm just wondering whether in the last sort of 20 minutes of this, was there anything more we want to say about that? Anything that we haven't... Well, I mean, the... Yeah, uh, it's... I mean, the, the thing I keep coming back to in ter- for um, digital as its core strength is its dynamism. It's mm. sort of... It's um, like the tactic that we've been using with the... Uh, with the... Um, with This Is Not A mm. Book, which is that we keep updating it. We've uh, like for example yeah. one thing I uh, I did uh, did over the weekend is I went through the book and I standardized on our hyphen usage which had been inconsistent. Very um interesting. it's sort of you know and uh, hyphens and dashes and uh, and uh, and sort of style guide these things we you know doing a bit of corrections rewrote a bit of of one part which I, I thought I thought wasn't clear. Mm. Um and it, it's just it's just so much easier to do that in digital. And the thing that I'd like to remind people is the fact that they can feed each other. Like the fact that I can at any time now decide to do a print copy of mm. our, our site with all of the upta- all of the edits and all of the fixes and all of the, all of the corrections. And then we can have the print version, which has all of the strengths and all of the mm. benefits and all of the assets that I've print, that print has. Yeah. Mm. So it's we can have both things. It's not an either or, and it, it's sort of it's the the core question that everybody, whether you're a writer or a publisher or anything else, has in in, ter, in the long term is how can you set this up so that the instead of um, instead of Fighting, fighting each other. How do we set, uh, set up digital and print so that they feed into each other, so that it becomes a, a virtuous cycle instead of a, vi- a vicious cycle of decline? Hmm. Um, so we, what we want to, uh, uh, in the long term is we want um, di- uh, print books that feed into digital and cause people to engage more into digital sites. We want w- a, a digital um, projects that whose engagement feeds into and improves and benefits print, we want these things to, to become symbiotic mm. rather than parasitic. 
and um, it's so easy for us to to it's so easy to present these two as a dichotomy as as eternally in conflict where mm. one has to win and the other one has to lose when the true nature the nature the true a, a true vision of the situation is the fact that these things are 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 feeding to each other they, we they build on each other they're like uh, you know two uh, two sides of a pyramid propping each mm. other up uh, um, and it's just we yeah that's pretty much it we, we uh, let's not you know try to uh, the the, uh, the, uh, the fact that they have each other's strengths is a good thing because they then complement each other mm. but to do that i mean and we're talking about non-fiction because we're talking about the book we just written yeah we've actually got to change our and this is one thing that we've done with this book is change our relationship with the written object and the printed object or the digital object that we're not one of the things that you and i said before i think we said it in the first podcast is for us Right at the fundamental root of it, um, and there are a lot of fundamental roots about this um, <laughs> in terms of a big tree that grows out of us. Anyway, that's a um, Swedish TV series. Um, is that the current ebook workflow is that at some point you know, an author writes a book, and at some point a print version is a digital version is hived off from what will become the print version, and that's yeah. what you get, which is your thing put with much less nuance um, than you did about the the ascendancy of just the text and just the text is what's kind of driven within that but actually one thing that we did with this book was completely change our relationship to how it was being written and how we saw the digital version as opposed to the print version in a way that the because <clears throat> for me the in terms of what we've got the a print edition right at the moment is a very imperfect thing that it needs yeah. for me it needs a lot of thinking about about the way information flows across pages the way we kind of pace the reading in that mm. that just and as much as i'm kind of completely in awe of the work you've done and the fact that you can generate <laughs> yeah, no absolutely i'm not being flippant about this so whether you can generate a pdf of everything that's on that site as the full text version of the instapaper friendly one but that for me is still not the print version the print version is a different object and a different animal entirely and it, yeah. kind of, it kind of i think it needs rewriting it needs really considering how we read in print and how we operate in print because there are as we said right at the start of this there are sections of this book that were designed to be read as short provocations that are mm. much more kind of McLuhan-y in terms of their they're just there to be awkward and annoying and yeah. to say prod you into action well you can put you in but just to say that there is there are you know transmedia is zig zig sputnik um yeah. it's excess that it's throwing that, that there are things in there that I, I know i wrote that are me not trying to be clever per se but me trying that there is something in here that's kind of contained in a three or four sentence thing yeah. that for me when i was envisaging the print version that's all there is on that page mm. there is just that thing on that page and there is kind of white space around that and for me this is this does go back to one thing that <clears throat> print does that digital finds very hard to do and it this also opens up a whole different set of things is actually really work with page layout and really work with typography and work with design and you and i had a conversation i think at the start of this year that i was looking at and i still am looking at producing i, I work with artist books a lot and i work with artists yeah. and i teach artists um and one of the things that they make are books. Artists make books and they make books in limited editions and small runs because they're often handmade or they're produced partly by hand and partly automatically or partly automated. And these tend to be quite illustration or, or pictorially or visually heavy. They're often very, very carefully designed objects. And we had a, because I didn't kind of know how this would translate, we had a discussion that essentially, as I recall, boiled down to it's going to be a PDF. <laughs> you can't do any of that. You no. can't do any of that. You have none of that control. You have none of that kind of control over the 
the real estate that is the page in a Kindle, and you can't dictate anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, uh, an art book, when you translate it into digital, becomes one of two things. Uh, either it becomes a, um, a fixed layout PDF style yep. thing. Mm. It doesn't matter really what actual format it uses. It's going to look the same. It's going to be a, a, a static snapshot. Yeah. Or it becomes a, a deviant art profile page. Right. Mm. You know, it's here's here's I here I am on a on an online community of artists. Here's my profile page and a gallery of my stuff. Sure. Um, it becomes one of those two things, and there's very little scope for anything beyond those two things. No, and, and, and an artist book is neither of those two things. Yeah, it's completely yeah, it's, different. Um, it's a it's a completely unique expression. Well, it is. I mean, and there's a colleague of mine. Um, so this is a definitely a mention for Ian Chamberlain. Um, <laughs> he won't listen to this ever because Ian won't do podcasts. I see he might do. Um, who remarks that as a print, Ian's a printmaker, and he makes really exquisite, beautiful prints that are. He's an illustrator, printmaker. And Ian's kind of remarked any student who wants to work in artist books is you just cut the value of your work by a tenth. Mm. Okay. Because you sell an individual print of a piece of work, ah. you can sell that for 100 quid. Yeah, okay. Or 40 quid, or 80 yeah. because it's in a series of 10 or 15 or 20, and that's, there is a market for print, there is a market for art in that respect. Mm. You put that into sell a book. Sell them online as well. You can sell them online. You put that into a book, and suddenly you can't shift the book for anything more than the cost of one of those. You know, you, you, the book has to have 15 pages or yeah. 20 pages and you can't sell a book for more than 20 quid, 30 quid. Yeah. Maybe 100 quid if it's a really limited run. And Ian's constant line is, you know, monetarily, artist books make no sense. Yeah. They are I mean, a vanity it, thing. Mm. This, this reminds me of... Uh, um, uh, uh, ages ago, I read a, I read a was reading a, a blog post by a um, photographer mm. and he was telling the story um, uh, about... I think it might have even have been um, the website called The Online Photographer. I can't remember exactly. Mm. Um, he was telling the story about how he was going to his local school, um, I think the high school that he used to graduate, and he was re- uh, re- uh, returning there for a reunion or something. Mm. And he was walking down one of the cor- one cor- a corridor, and he just saw, lining the wall, were all of these gla- classic prints of these classic photographs. Um, you know, um, Ansel Adams and, mm. uh, you know, just classic pho- photographs. Um, um, and you know, just really nice looking prints. And he kept looking through them and was like, oh, God, how, how do you afford buying all of these prints? And uh, uh, these, these look so good. And he I, I asked one teacher, he said, no, no, what we did, we just bought a, bought a book, a photo book, and we cut it up <laughs> and framed the pages. Right. <clears throat> and it's sort of like, yeah. I mean, it's just printing has has uh, 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 the uh, quality of printing uh, had increased to such an extent that uh, they could do that, and it's mm. sort of it's what you said in a nutshell, or almost a little bit too explicitly. But um, yeah. it mm. is it is going along those lines. I mean, sometimes you just have to choose to choose whatever form or medium maximizes your your benefits. I mean, it's just yeah. sometimes you, sometimes it might be best for uh, for artists just to opt out of books. Which I would find <clears throat> depressing. Well, yeah, absolutely depressing, absolutely disheartening because the the book is, for me, the book is an object. The book mm. is a thing. The book is something that, even the, actually no, especially the dog-eared paperbacks I've owned for thirty thirty-five years are an object. They are a thing, and I have a history. We're back to this. I have a history with. The They're object. souvenirs. They're souvenirs of a life lived, and and one of the reasons I buy the books. Some of the books I buy now is because they are objects. They're absolutely beautiful design. I mean, I've got some... Okay, good. this is my 
this is perfect for podcasting because nobody can see a damn thing um, <laughs> because we're in a kitchen and you're listening to audio I've got a thing by Ginkgo Press called The Art of the Book um, and it's absolutely beautiful so there's a there's a pink elastic ribbon that comes around it there's a piece that opens out there's a sh- is that like a brochure that's it's, sort of like it's, it's a brochure of the whole book that's attached to the book it's, well it's, bound it's in the book sewn really. onto the cover that's that looks really nice because this is a catalogue of bookmakers Ooh. <laughs> And book designers work, and it's been treated with the same kind of care and the same kind of attention as a as an artist does to an artist's book. Is that Coptic stitch binding? It's um, yes, yeah. Sewn. That's very nice. Sewn. I mean, obviously, it's automated. There's a, there's a machine that does this, but it's and, a, and it's properly sewn. That's not the um, you know you know yeah. mass, mass sewn in China no. that falls apart no. like one publisher. No. And, it's, and it's a collection. It's a collection of artist books, and it's a really aside from the smell of print which is still a thing um it's just a really beautiful piece of design and this is what ginkgo do incredibly well um obviously this isn't a 10 quid paperback no this, God, you no. know this is a 40 quid hardback thing that sits even, there even, even the paper looks nice just even, on its own even the paper is good but that that's for that i can't imagine and this is maybe this is a conversation that you and i had earlier in the year, i can't imagine that thing existing digitally for that mm. thing digitally it's a very imperfect website yeah because it has none of what I want to do when I'm reading it is to flick back between something called Not the End of Print, which is um, is describing a set of books with foiling gold edging and looking inside and showing me bits, um, with looking forward to books about food and design to bouncing back. And I want the physical relationship with the thing. I want to see the artist sketches, and that that means I'm looking at a page layout. I'm looking at a thing that opens out on a left-hand and a right-hand page, I can see the whole thing, and I can see the typography, I can see the way it's designed, because somebody has clearly very thought about this incredibly clearly and incredibly carefully and made something that operates as an object and operates as a book. And we go from that, and I have McSweeney's 24. Um, And McSweeney's are amazing, because that's what they do, and every edition is designed differently. And this is... This is a, oh. a Z-fold. Mm. Oh, God. That, 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 I've never seen anything like that. It has two spines. Um, it's got a spine. Yeah, of course you can. That's it's just it's, it's, amazing. Um, if you imagine, for, if you don't have a company 24 in front of you, if you imagine a book where you look at the whole thing from the top and instead of one spine that forms a kind of very squashed N, what you have is another spine sewn onto the bottom of that N that brings back up and it's it makes a Z shape. But it means you're two books bound into the same object. I can't imagine... Yes... You can make that digitally, but there's no point making that digitally because the thing is a physical object. Well, it's sort of in the way it's read. Mm. Yeah, I mean the, the the thing that I come back to every time is the fact that um, the core atom of um, digital versus print are are incompatible. Yeah, mm-hmm. as in the the core structure of um, uh, of a book is basically um, pages, paper. Yeah. Um, that's how everything is built up from. But the core sort of structural atom for digital is the feedback loop. You do something, you get ah, a, a, get okay. a response, and that is just a completely different thing. There, and it's sort of like you're trying to replicate a page-like experience through a series of feedback loops. Mm. Is it's like it's it's literally like trying to build a game of reading. You know, it's the same sort of thing. You 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 you're trying to replicate. A physical artifact through a series of interactions, and it's it, you can do it, mm. but it's not the 
most effective use of that um, of that medium. And it's sort of the this uh, just doing the 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 beautiful physical the the beautiful interaction and the beautiful page mm. are just two things that are so completely different that they lend themselves to different things. Yeah. There is such mm. a thing as a, a very beautiful interaction where you do something and it's just like oh my god wow that just mm. that was awesome. Yeah. Um, but it's it's just it it it's describing and showing and doing a completely different thing, and. That's. I mean, but that that sort of um, ties into what you what you said in your manifesto, in that, you know, print has its thing that it can do, and that core foundation it's built on is completely different, mm. and digital has another thing that yeah. it does, mm. and the stuff that it can do really really well mm. are things that print can't do well. Completely, and and there are obviously this. For me, there are, these are not polar opposites. These are not things that never meet. That there are no. things, there are things that books can do. That it's are, a crossover. Are, yeah, there's a, it's a Venn diagram. There are, mm. There's a crossover. There's a spectrum. That somewhere in the middle, there are things that um, books can do that kind of that nod or are antecedents of interactive behaviour, mm. of digital behaviour, of, of what, as you say, absolutely. This is a feedback loop. And there are things that book that digital can do that certainly borrow from the affordances of print. That borrow oh, yeah. from the way pages work. Um, and we talk about that in the book a little bit. Um, we can talk about it more, but we talk about that in the book in terms of things like um, Robin Sloan's Fish. Yeah. Um, that certainly, although it's a purely digital thing and it relies on a feedback loop, plays with how we read, plays mm. with how we read in a sequence and the pace at which we read. And the other and the other book, which I've probably mentioned before we start to think about finishing this, is Mark Danielewski's House of Leaves, which for me is still the thing that points toward digital most clearly in print. Yeah. Um, as an object that absolutely is a thing that exists in print and a thing that is designed to be read as a print object, but that acknowledges the existence of digital technology, is designed digitally and would almost be impossible to design. Well, it's not impossible to design. It would be very because hard. It would be an awful lot of work and more work than they actually put into it to make this thing work. But it nods toward those feedback loops, those layers of reading where you are working your way in a non-linear manner through... through. Do you know House of Leaves? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's sort of... It's also just so goddamn playful. It is. Totally I mean, it's sort of... And that that in itself is a very digital thing. The whole sort of idea that we're just... We're, we're being playful around these things, which yeah. is... It's the natural thing to do on uh, on digital. And it sort of... Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, it, and, and it's... Maybe that what we say if, if what we're saying is that the feedback loop is the building block of digital and the thing that you know you do something and something else happens mm. is is the primary kind of marker of it and the primary marker of a print book is is the physical thing about the object and our relationship mm. with that and maybe maybe a little more time on picking that rather than transposing one thing into another one of the things and there's a reason there's a piece in this is not a book called the House of Leaves memo. Um, which is kind of my attempt to write a letter to Mark Danielewski saying, for God's sake, don't ever, ever, ever make House of Leaves an e-book. <laughs> Just don't. Just don't. You'll Because there's nothing about that book. You could translate it as a sequence of JPEGs, completely fine, make a PDF of it, and mm. it would sit quite happily on an iPad. But none of the playfulness, none of the joy of it, none of the, none of the uncanny reading experience would, it, for my money, translate properly none of it would work because the book the book is a thing the book that the house of leaves is is an object that demands to be written on in the order that demands to be that you play with it demands that you that you are you understand the weight of 800 pages mm. of, yeah. of not 800 pages of text by any means there's a, there's a there's 
much less text than it first appears, and much less, much kind of much less story and more story than it first appears. But but it has that relationship with you as a reader, and it absolutely attends to the thing we started talking about first of all in terms of where are you in the book, how do you have a relationship with this as an object where are we within any one of the three or four nested narratives that work within that book mm. and how are we reading that and how do we know how to go back and forward and that that for me is something that print does well digital kind of digital can do and it can nod to but we need to spend more time unlocking that i mean we keep coming back to a thing that is very controversial in the um, among both um digital oriented people like the digirati or whatever you want to call them and the literati, which mm. are the sort of literary and print people, is the idea that you don't want to turn everything into an ebook, yeah. and that is actually such a controversial thing to say. Apparently, it's one of those things that I, that people pick upon uh, the most frequently out of anything that that I've I've said or or you've said that I've sort of heard, and that the idea that. You, you know, some books just shouldn't be go going to digital, and that some ebooks should just stay ebooks and not ever be printed. That just uh, people just are flabbergasted at the idea that you'd you dare say that thing. The first time I got into an argument, it's not the first time I got into an argument. I've been in many arguments. <laughs> the first time I kind of the first time I got called out by a publisher on it was Peter Smith City, oh, which yeah. is a beautiful thing. It's a really nicely designed. Um, Peter Smith is a is a writer who's interested in the city as as an organism, as an object, as a historical thing, as a thing that we have a cultural relationship with. And he reviews the Guardian. He's a very nice man. Um, and City is kind of I would describe it as a kind of coffee table academic text. Mm. It's very yeah. well written. It's very erudite. It's very smart. It's a beautiful um, book. It's a beautiful book, and it's designed really, really well. It's thoughtful. Um, it's designed to be something that you put on your shelf and you show people yeah. as well as well as reading it, and the 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 Kindle edition is an well. What, I mean, I'm going to say was because I've not actually looked at any updates. So I, I, I kind of refused to after a while. When the, when the Kindle edition first came out, it was an abomination. Oh, it was yeah, I completely horrible because it, it all it did was take those InDesign files and just slap them badly. Very, very badly, with none of the nuance, none of the thought, none of anything. And for that, for me, that was a text that should not have been yeah. put in any digital. And, and I can't, the only reason to put it in a digital edition I can think of in that format was some ridiculous idea about sales and ridiculous yeah. idea about convenience. And it's just, no, that's not, you're missing the point. You're completely misunderstanding what that book is and what that book is for and how we want to read it. I mean, a, a sort of a decent benchmark um, that. I've used in the past is that if you can imagine a mass market paperback version of that book, mm. then it will do okay as an ebook. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It, uh, sort of if if you can't to sort of boil it down to the gunky, awful mm. paper and crap printing of a mass market paperback, um, then you can't 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 boil it down to an ebook. If it can't survive the transition to a mass market paperback, it won't survive the transition to an ebook because ebooks. And I say this as somebody who makes a living making them. Mm. Ebook platforms universally suck. They are awful. They're yeah. just. They're just. They. Uh, they are. Just the typography is still awful. Even even with the latest updates, mm. the design is awful. The navigation is awful. The presenta- representation of images is awful. The structure is awful. Everything is awful. They, they're just awful. They're, they're bad websites. They're, they're not even good websites. They're, you can make good websites. You can't really make a good ebook, except just if you make an ebook that doesn't require anything in terms of navigation, like a novel. 
that, yeah. you can make those yeah. fine. You can throw things through. But <clears throat> anything more ambitious than that, and you're throwing stuff out. You're just you're just doing stuff that is just going to be massively compromised. That's completely true. And maybe the last thing that I want to kind of say, because we're kind of running out of time, I suppose. Or yeah, not we are. Out of time, <laughs> is Peter May is breaking the page and. I wanted to read this as a print copy. I really wanted to read it in a print mm. edition. And in this country, you can't buy it. Really? You can't buy a print edition. That's just... It's oh. available on Amazon.com. It's yeah. not available on Amazon.uk. I couldn't find a copy on Abe. I couldn't find a copy on any you know, other second-hand sites or the used book sites. So all I could buy was the Kindle edition. And it just seemed to me... I was reading this and really enjoying his prose and really enjoying the arguments and kind of you know, he, he, running alongside him. But the the reading the book in that format, made his argument for him. Yeah, yeah. It was a really peculiarly kind of disconcerted, dissonance-ridden experience yeah. of this book that is railing against E-Tex. And Do you think problems. that maybe that he, uh, the reason why that is is because he hasn't sold the um, the UK rights for the book and he's self-published the UK version? I think that's entirely possible. I think, honestly, it's... Um, I can't... You know the industry in that respect much better than I do, and other people will tell it's me things. Mess. But yeah, I w- it's it's the kind of book I would love to read it in a print edition because it would its argument would be better made. It's also, the sequence. The I, I, I saw the uh, pictures that Craig Mod posted of the print edition, and that looks really nice. And it's a really <laughs> nice thing, and and the, the e edition is just yeah, it's completely broken. Anyway, um, but yeah, no, it's so basically um, some things are good, some things are bad, um, and the whole is. When you mix them together, is sort of interesting. That's basically the conclusion of the year. Uh, That's true. Yeah. Okay. Pretty so much. there we are. We're done. Um, thank you if you made it to the end. Um, You're a better no, person than we are. <laughs> we're still talking. There are no podcast extras on this, and we will see you next time. Excellent. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. <laughs>